Hello there, listeners, and welcome to Episode 7 of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through various Star Wars novels, both in Legends and Canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In this episode, we will continue through Star Wars Thrawn, covering chapters 13 and 14, and I'm joined today once again by my good friend with an accent smoother than a bantha's bottom, Samuel Sturmer. Sturm, how you doing, man? Thanks for being on the show today. I'm very well, thanks. It's great to be here. <laughs> it is good to have you again, man, to uh, continue our two-part series. Uh, I'm excited to get into these chapters. I know that you had mentioned uh, at least 13 was probably one of your favorites. So Yeah, I definitely really enjoyed this one. Yeah, very much played out kind of like a like an action movie. So we'll, uh, I'm looking forward to breaking it down with you. So I can hop right into my chapter summary and then we'll get stuck right into it, man. Great. The Imperial fleet meets the hundreds of vulture droids in battle. However, the droids are too small and quick for their turbolaser batteries. Thrawn notices a sudden shift in the droids' tactics when they fly under the Imperial ship's transmission shadows, and he determines that someone else is controlling the droids until they lose transmission in those moments. Thrawn and Eli are able to pinpoint the location from where the droids are being controlled. They relay the coordinates to Admiral Gendling to fire upon, but, doubting Thrawn, he refuses. Thrawn instead sends the coordinates of the transmission shadows for all the ships to fire into, and the Imperials soon destroy the droids. Commander Chino takes the blame for usurping Gendling's authority, and Gendling vows revenge. Thrawn and Eli discover that Night Swan planned for the Imperials' victory in order to more easily smuggle goods past them, perhaps for a greater purpose. So this chapter was, yeah, like I said, very action-packed, kind of played out like an action film, because the focal point of it was focusing on this battle between the mm. Imperial Task Force and the hundreds of vulture droids that just swarmed out of nowhere. And you, you had mentioned how this was you know, one of your favorite chapters, either in the chapters that we've covered on the show or in the book. W- what are your thoughts on the, uh, the chapter before we kind of get into the finer details of it? I just really enjoyed the way that Thrawn came across in this one. He really showed his exceptional intelligence and battle scenario skills. Um, And it was very obvious that he is the go-to man when fighting these battles. Yeah, it's... uh... He did turn out to be the hero, uh, as we'll find out. But we got to give some credit to Commander Chino. As, e- as Eli had mentioned, when they reached the Umbaran system and were preparing for uh, confronting the insurgents on the planet, you know, he was getting the Thunder Wasp to battle stations, and he kind of saw this as his time to perhaps finally prove himself in a combat situation, in a genuine combat situation. Because he knew that going into this, being the commander of this ship was probably the the highest he was ever going to get rank-wise, but this was perhaps one of the most defining moments that he'd ever have. And they did have their backs up against the wall here with uh, confronting the hundreds of vulture droids, but he he's standing on the bridge, he's very calm and ordering the turbo lasers to open fire. But, you know, vulture droids are small and quick and they're able to take out a few of them, but overall it's pretty ineffective and the battle starts to go pretty south pretty quick. Yeah. And there's this section from the text that I'll read right here and I quote, And still Commander Chino stood on the command walkway, unmoving, silent, in over his head, helpless. 
but the Chiss was also standing motionless, his face as impassive as Chino's. But there was something about him that sent a shiver up Eli's back. Thrawn saw something. Somewhere in all that chaos and destruction, he saw something. And I couldn't help but look at this moment as perhaps what sets Thrawn apart from Chino, but then also from ordinary Imperial officers, where, you know, Chino's clearly in over his head, and probably what's going through Chino's mind is pure panic. Mm -hmm. Like, all right, what do I do? This is insane. Uh, We're losing pretty quickly. And Thrawn is standing just as quietly as Chino is, but just with the way that Thrawn's tactical mastermind works he's looking for an opportunity looking for something to exploit in what he's witnessing and it it was kind of Thrawn's time to shine wasn't it yeah we can really see that from that pause that he's taken you can imagine him analyzing the battle and taking the opportunity to understand what's going on to then put together a, a plan or formulate a plan to do the best that they can in the situation and hopefully turn the tide of the battle but as you said Chino is just standing there with the sort of panic expression or the the mind that doesn't have a clue what to do Um, and in this moment Thrawn really is is as you said he's going to shine Yeah, and I think the most impressive thing here is that Thrawn didn't have time beforehand to analyze the battle situation and come up with a plan beforehand you know he, you know he, he didn't have time to premeditate over mm-hmm. getting swarmed by hundreds of vulture droids this is something that he's devising very much in the thick of battle in the moment he's able to see certain things that are significant to their advantage in the thick of battle and and like you said it, it does end up turning the tide pretty significantly so Thrawn asks the bridge who has had combat experience against vulture droids, and a Lieutenant Hammerly at one of the sensor stations says that she has, and Thrawn sends her to one of the turbo laser stations, and he takes her place. But before he goes to take Hammerly's place, Chino starts to command someone else to go take Hammerly's place, and Thrawn kind of cuts him off, saying, no, I got this, Eli, you're with me. And, you know, it's obviously a, a power move by Thrawn, because Eli is recognizing that he pretty much usurped Chino's authority there. And my question to you is, did Thrawn do the right thing there? Was he too bold? Um, you know, or... or is he right in doing kind of what's absolutely necessary to win right here? I think there's a sort of backstory that we haven't quite been told within the book. Uh, the sort of respect that Chino and Thrawn have between each other. Um, and I think Thrawn is, is sort of bold to sort of butt in like that and interrupt a senior person. But because of their sort of this respect they have between each other, um, it's less of a wrong thing to do and more of a, I think I'm better in this situation, therefore, why don't we go with what I say? Yeah, and you know, credit to Chino for taking that in stride. You know, he could have reprimanded Thrawn right there and then, asking, you know, what you know, what the hell are you doing, man? But like you said, and as we'll also get into later on in the chapter, there is this respect between the two of them, and so he he lets Thrawn do what he does because he he probably knows internally that you know he's he's probably come to terms with the fact that there's nothing further that he can do in this situation that could change the tide of the battle, and that 
he knows that whatever Thrawn does, it's going to be the right move in that moment. Where Thrawn, as we've seen, compared to other officers in different situations, can find that almost like silver lining in a situation, the subtleties in the situation to just turn the tide on its head. And so, you know, credit to Chino for accepting that, because if it was a, a character like um, Admiral Wiscavis or Captain Rossi, you could have expected them to bite back, but, you know, not Chino, and, and credit to him for doing that. Um, and as we see further, you know, he did the right thing in not acting against Thrawn. So Thrawn is at the sensor station with Eli, and he, you know, he told Eli that he needed an excuse to take control of the sensor station. And he was telling Eli that from his studies of vulture droids, in their fights in the Clone Wars, they normally didn't fight as effectively as they were in that current battle. And Thrawn pointed to the sensor display, and he told Eli that he noted a change in a group of the vulture droids' attack pattern and their speed. And after a glimpse, Eli notices it well, is that their speed changed suddenly, and they went from firing at a specific target to, you know, firing kind of randomly. And the text says, and I quote, the shifts in combat style were subtle, but now that he knew what to look for, they were quite visible. And, and I thought this was a perfect example, again, of Thrawn being able to take the subtle, for like, like what he does with art, just like subtle details and, and such like that, and to reveal their significance. And he tells Eli that, and I quote, You said yourself that these droids are not clever. Their creators assumed a given fighter would not survive long, and so programmed them to be swarming weapons. And Eli continues for him, so burning through their resources as fast as possible without any long-term considerations? <laughs> and I thought that was kind of an ironic point, because that's kind of the impression that we get from TIE fighters and, like, the movies and the shows, <laughs> that they're just, like, swarm indiscriminately and just get, you know, get to just not meant to last long. Was like, Do you think that was kind of meta from Eli and Timothy Zahn in that moment? <laughs> yeah, I think so. It's, you know, the classic sort of droid sort of attack that you see from the prequel trilogy in, within the Clone Wars. Um, and, yeah, Zahn sort of sums it up perfectly as to what everyone sort of knows about these types of droids. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, Thrawn is kind of summing up what we wouldn't have normally noticed with these droids when he's kind of turning on his, his art mode. And he says, and I quote, look at the curve of the combat pods, the shape of the stripes, the positions of the blaster barrels. Weapons such as this not only are functional, but incorporate the artistry of their creators. The beings who created and built these fighters believed in short, quick answers to questions and problems. They are designed to swarm, but they only briefly show that tactic. That leads to the conclusion, he paused expectantly, and I thought this was brilliant from Thrawn because, you know, he's waiting for Eli to fill in the rest of the idea, and my thought is, like, all of us are probably thinking, dude, Thrawn, what are you doing? This is the middle of a battle. This isn't, you know, we don't have time for you to just teach Eli and wait for him to put these pieces together. <laughs> what did you think about that? I thought it was, it was the perfect sort of teacher-student moment you know the thrawn sort of giving this life situation a sort of tutorial side and sort of is trying to bring eli up to the to thrawn standard and trying to get him to analyze these things um and so sort of expectantly and waiting for an answer um for the rest of the sentence from eli is very much a tutor 
and pupil moment that um, isn't really thought of in terms of imperialness like you wouldn't expect them to try and bring each other up um but no i, I really like that moment yeah that's that's a good uh, a good point of kind of like the tutor pupil or you know kind of thrawn is kind of playing the the tutor slash warrior in this position where this is part of his grooming of eli to to bring him up to the tactical speed that he's at um, but also just credit for him because le- you're right where other imperial officers probably wouldn't go out of their way to try and bring a subordinate up to their speed. It's kind of like putting yourself above the other. But Thrawn here is, is very much going out of his way to teach Eli in these moments. And, you know, because he could have easily filled in the rest of the sentence on yeah. his own. He was probably ready to, but this is a learning experience for Eli and probably Eli would learn best in these situations where he needs to think on his feet, but also be smart about it. And I think, yeah, Thrawn is doing a good job of trying to get him to do that. And they're able to piece together that because these droids are only briefly showing what they're programmed to do, they determine that someone else must be controlling the droids from somewhere either on the planet or on the moon, but someone else is controlling the droids. And when it's only when they fly into the transmission shadows that they lose that connection and resort back to kind of how they're programmed to be. So Thrawn and Eli kind of take it on themselves to study the sensor display and try to analyze the locations of each of the shadows and try to pinpoint where that control transmission is coming from. And I thought it was a, a cool moment here that... Eli also realizes that Thrawn had deliberately decided not to let the rest of the crew in on the plan because he wanted to pass more credit to them and to Chino because he could have easily said, all right, I got a plan. Here's what we're doing and I'm taking control. But he didn't do that. He kind of just kind of subtly took control of the sensor station, not making a big deal out of it. And so if they got this victory, whatever ensued from there could be credited to the crew and to Chino rather than it being known that it was him who took control. And do you think this was like a calculated move by Thrawn? Or was this kind of a selfless act, a genuinely selfless act where he didn't really want any of the glory, just the results, and he didn't mind allowing that credit to the rest of them? I believe it's a bit of both, to be honest. He doesn't want to take all the credit. There's there's a couple of reasons that I think. is because he's built up this reputation of always being this the one with all the answers and taking control of all these situations. And that's sort of got him in a few sticky situations with people that where they get jealous of his intelligence and then take it out on either him or certain other people. Um, and then also there's the side that he he sort of realises that this is Chino's last opportunity to get this, to win this battle and make himself look good. Um, and I think it's yeah definitely selfless of him to allow the rest of the crew and Chino specifically to get some credit so that his career isn't in jeopardy and it's a really sort of unimperial thing to do from Thrawn um, but as we know he hasn't been in the Imperials sort of navy for long and he's going back to his sort of roots as a chiss maybe this is what they would do in that situation as well that's a very good point because you know we do know that Thrawn isn't necessarily up to speed on 
you know, kind of like very, very imperial things to do and to say and like the politics of it. And, you know, he's not about the, the power struggles where, you know, we could assume that a lot of the imperial officers that we've come across probably would have taken that situation to take the credit for themselves. But, you know, Thrawn isn't about that. He's, you know, he's about doing, you know, what's, what's best for the empire and for the crew here. And he's not really about the personal glory. And we, we saw that in the incidents on the Dromodar earlier where, you know, he was, he was the mastermind behind solving that whole issue. But when, when the time came to dish out the credit, he recommended Eli and the rest of the crew for promotions or recognition. You know, I think it, it ends up paying off here and potentially plays more into that respect factor between him and, and Chino. So one of the Imperial Corvettes goes down in a ball of fire. So you could say things are getting pretty hot, pun intended. <laughs> um, but by then, Thrawn had pinpointed where the transmission coordinating the attack was coming from on the planet. And he tells Chino that he found the location and asked him to relay that to Gendling in order for the ISD foremost to target and, and fire upon. And Chino has no clue what Thrawn's talking about. You know, he's like, what, what transmission? You know, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? Um, but he chooses to trust Thrawn here, and he contacts Gendling. And Gendling, on the other hand, chose, as we'll see, he chose not to trust Thrawn here. Yeah. But what we do get from Admiral Gendling is what I think to be a very interesting case. Because at first we're frustrated because he claims that there's no way that Thrawn could have located the transmitter. And that's pretty typically imperial arrogance right there. <laughs> but he follows that up with kind of a sensible decision when he says, and I quote, and I'm not about to go shooting at random into a civilian city on the strength of some mid-level officer's wild guesswork. And so the last part is again frustrating, but Eli recognizes that he's kind of got a point where it's actually pretty sensible and maybe the right thing to do to not want to fire into a civilian population. And wouldn't we expect an Imperial Admiral to not care about that kind of collateral damage, to, to not worry about firing into a civilian population there? He seems to be a confusing one, yeah. He has this Imperial persona where he instantly denies what, uh, Chino is asking and says that no this can't be right it, I didn't think of it it's definitely not true but then he also backs that point up with I don't want to fire on this village um, and yeah it's a strange one because any other sort of imperials within the movies or TV series that we've seen would seem to happily just fire and not care about the collateral damage but as we see here he's sort of thinking about that and is sort of confuses the reader as to what his sort of intentions are yeah because on one hand we're kind of convinced that this is just because of arrogance here where he's so against believing Thrawn here that that's why he decided against it but then we're also confronted with like you said a very confusing situation where he also gives a pretty valid reason <laughs> so you know maybe it's a little bit of both but either way Thrawn is dead set on on this recommendation where you know because it is Thrawn we're we've got to be convinced that he that he is a hundred percent sure that he knows where the transmission is coming from but my question is 
you know, given his, what we've seen from him before, where he kind of does whatever it takes, where even if it means, for example, usurping a senior officer's authority, he, he does what he needs to do to win. And do you think that Thrawn would have still recommended firing into a civilian population if he wasn't 100% sure? Do you think he would have done that Would if he would have done kind of whatever the cost? Um, I think that he probably wouldn't. He would sort of assess the situation um, and if he isn't 100%, I think that in his mind... Um, there's still this slight chance that it could be the other way. But as we see, the majority of the time, he has been 100% sure, and it has turned out to be the case. So if he were 100% sure, yeah, he, he, would, he would go for it. And as we've seen um, earlier in the book, the reason he got exiled was for because of his preemptive strikes and that yeah. aggressive sort of tactic. Um, so maybe looking at it from that way that if, even if he wasn't 100% sure he still might go for it as the probability is that he is still right that's a good point cuz you know he was in favor of preemptive strikes and we've we've seen him take risks earlier in the book like on the dromedar he kind of guessed that signy wouldn't gun down the rest of the blood crow's crew when you know they got ambushed on the dromedar it was a guess there he so it was a, it was a risk that he took that that wouldn't be the case and, you know, preemptive strikes can also be considered a, a risk of sorts. So it, we kind of get two sides of a coin here where Thrawn both is able to be certain enough in his decision making, but then also be comfortable enough to take risks. So I, I could agree with you. I, I don't know if he would, but, you know, just given that it's Thrawn here, you know, we've, we've got to believe that he's 100% sure here. And as it turns out, he is right about this current situation. But unfortunately, yeah, Gendling refuses, and Thrawn kind of stands there for a few moments in silence, and then he tells the communications officer to signal all the Imperial ships to fire on the transmission shadows that he's marked on the ship's tactical displays. And all ships acknowledge the transmission, and they change their tactics, uh, and the tide turned, and the Imperials ended up winning. The Umbaran surrendered, and Admiral Gendling was pretty pissed off. <laughs> um, so in this next section of the chapter, we're on the bridge of the ISD foremost in Thrawn's point of view here. And Gendling is really having a go at Chino because Chino here is taking responsibility for what happened. He's not blaming Thrawn here. He's saying that it was under his orders and um, that he, he's kind of protecting Thrawn here. And we kind of get the sense that Gendling knows that he screwed up where Thrawn notices, and I quote, his expression holds embarrassment and guilt. His tone holds harshness and anger. So we can probably guess that, yeah, Gendling know that he goofed and he's trying to cover it up by tearing into uh, Commander Chino. But credit to Chino here that he's you know, kind of standing in, in the face of the full ire and wrath of an Imperial Admiral. And he's just calmly defending what, you know, yeah, what he portrayed to be his actions. And Gendling, yeah, he, he, he kind of vows that Chino is going to be court-martialed and that his career will be over. And and he leaves them at that. Uh, what were your thoughts on that little spat? It's it's nice to see that finally a imperial 
officer above Thrawn is defending him. And we really can see the respect that Chino must have for Thrawn. Um, as he is able to take this wrath of Gendling um, and accept the mistakes which technically weren't made but were said to be made. Um, and I think this is also because he, Chino has accepted that this was his last chance. He's He must have been on the last legs for whatever reason. Um, and he's... He's come to the fact that he's accepted this and is happy to see that Thrawn can carry on and do well for the Empire. So it's a nice thing to see that this Imperial is thinking of um, others before himself. Yeah, very much like a Virgilio type character yeah. where, you know, we get Chino, like you said, it's, it's this senior officer kind of doing the right thing here and, you know, dare I say, a, a decent imperial, you know, <laughs> a, you know, a good man. And, um, you know, you got to give credit to him here. And, and he knows, he realizes that that Gendling could choose to go after the entire crew and Thrawn as well but he can't really do that and go into the, the details of what happened without exposing his own mistakes so that he'd satisfy himself and kind of taken down Chino and leaving the others alone and Thrawn responds and I quote that is not right or proper and my thoughts are that, that that's kind of the reality of imperial politics mm -hmm. isn't it there like forsaking what's right and proper for things like vengeance yeah, he's Thrawn is, is still not fully up to date with the political background of the Empire and the seeing that for him is really against what he obviously believes in. Um and he does know what to do in that situation, um and sort of leaves it up to the uh, experienced officer to know what's right. Yeah, and, you know, we can see that Chino did the right thing here. And I think that Thrawn, again, is kind of set apart from the Imperials, where he still is able to make decisions and see what's right, at least from his point of view, and how that kind of conflicts with a lot of what the Empire itself does. Where even earlier in the book, in his conversations with Commandant Dean Lark at the Royal Imperial Academy, Dean Lark admitted that there are, you know, loopholes in the laws and ways that the laws are manipulated to benefit certain people over others. And Thrawn was kind of confused at that. And here is another point where he's kind of... The empire that Thrawn has chosen to fight for and, and place his allegiance with we can see that that's clearly different from the real empire where his vision of it kind of conflicts and contradicts the reality of it mm -hmm. where you know things like vengeance and jealousy and envy come out on top over the right thing to do the the, the proper thing to do and yeah kind of kind of sets thrown apart where you know maybe he's less imperial again than mm -hmm. uh, than what's than what's come to be expected from other officers and you would also mention that, you know, Chino is on his last line here and, you know, that he kind of realizes that Thrawn's career is the more important one here. And that's kind of like how he takes the fall so that Thrawn can survive and, and kind of live to see another day in the Imperial Navy. So it was just a, a good set of moments 
uh, in testament towards Chino's character. And uh, uh, Thrawn and Chino have a little moment where, uh, before they part ways, Thrawn and Chino kind of have this moment of mutual respect where, you know, Chino lets him know, yeah, uh, you know, I'm just a, an old officer and you're this rising star, you know, you are the future of the, the Navy here. And, you know, they both say that they've learned a lot from each other. And, and Thrawn says, too, that he's learned a lot from Chino. And <laughs> I'm just wondering, is that... Was that just Thrawn being nice, or do you think that he's actually learned a lot from Chino? I'm sure he was uh, just trying to be nice. Um, but then there are some sort of aspects that Thrawn could have learnt um, in terms of commanding this vessel and the crew, such as what mistakes not to make, um, the best way to go about things. Um, but yeah, he wouldn't have learned as much from Chino as Chino probably learned from Thrawn. Yeah, probably. And and Chino himself admits, and I quote, I doubt that. <laughs> so, um, but as Thrawn notices, his tone holds dry humor with no bitterness or resentment. And I just think that that speaks so much to Chino here, where mm. you would expect an Imperial officer in that moment to be bitter, you know, bitter and resentful, but not Chino. And it, you know, Thrawn and Commander Chino have really set themselves apart as kind of the the good apples amidst a, a bad batch of Imperial <laughs> officers that we keep getting introduced to. Um, so just props to, to Commander Chino and for Thrawn. Just it was a, it was a nice moment between two well-respected people so you know chino heads off to the bridge uh, in the docking bay and leaves eli with thrawn and you know eli's kind of in outrage over what just happened mm -hmm. and he knows that gendling screwed up and he's you know taking it out on chino and he says and i quote i thought only politicians were that level of stupid and nasty and first of all like poor eli because he thinks first that an imperial politician could never be racist and now he's disappointed in an imperial admiral for being stupid and nasty and <laughs> it's kind of like he's just getting disappointed by every single authority figure here and i'm like eli you shouldn't be surprised man this is the empire <laughs> but it's just uh he just keeps getting let down. Yeah, he's not quite used to the uh, political scene yet. Um, and seeing all the agendas that these high-ranking Imperials have um, is very sort of upsetting to him as he sees it as just they're trying to get personal gain um, rather than sort of being nice to one another and trying to do their bit for the empire exactly and uh, that's that's really interesting um you know because eli has set himself apart as being a, a decent guy <laughs> i think yeah. we've i think everyone can pretty much agree with that which is very you know in contrast to what we keep seeing from authority figures in the empire and that's an interesting point that gendling wiscovis captain rossi all these imperial officers are doing what's choosing to do what's best for them over what's best for the Empire as a whole, but in moments, you know, that we see from Thrawn and Shino where they put their interests below the, the, the best, what, what can be done for the best of the situation and for the best of the Empire, and that's kind of ironic that the, the these Imperial officers are, like, not really doing their job in, in doing what's good mm -hmm. for what they stand for, yet guys like Thrawn, uh, who I'm sure, you know, if, if 
Captain Rossi were to have an interview right now, she would probably say that Thrawn is does not stand for the Empire. But it's kind of ironic that, you know, in, in him doing what's best for the greater situation, you know, he's kind of more Imperial than mm-hmm. what the Imperial officers should be, which is just a, a interesting contrast and kind of a ironic um, that the Empire's officers are out for themselves more so than they are for the for the greater cause. So Eli lets Thrawn know that the building from which the transmission on Umbara was coming from was run by humans and not Umbarans. So Thrawn was right there in his suspicions that the Umbarans were not behind that vulture droid attack. And Eli says that most of the unrest was coming from the mining districts on Umbara and that the Imperials have since taken over that. And Thrawn asks Eli to calculate the Umbaran system's success rate against smuggling of rare metals. And Eli kind of turns on his shipping mode and ran the numbers and found the Umbaran success rate against smugglers to be 90% or, or around that figure compared to the 45-ish percent success rate in Imperial-controlled worlds. And we get kind of a big moment here where Thrawn says, and I quote, It would seem we have found the reason for the attack, the purpose for a clearly futile assault upon an Imperial force. Night Swan wished for the Empire to take control of Umbara's mines. And Eli continued for him, Because it's easier for him and his smugglers to cheat material past Imperial inspectors than past the Umbarans. And I kind of sit back at this and I'm like, damn, so Night Swan planned all of this to happen the, exactly the way that it panned out. Yeah, we start to see the intelligence that this Night Swan character has um, as it's such a devious plan to make the Imperials think that they've, they've won this battle when actually the whole idea was for that to happen so that this Night Swan uh, has an easier chance of sort of taking over this mine uh, from under the Imperials. Exactly, where, you know, if if we can assume that if it was only Admiral Gendling in charge here, that he would just see, oh, this is, you know, we won the day, and that's it. But with a guy like Thrawn who can see the finer picture and the bigger picture, he's able to see that this was all kind of a setup where they just played right into his hands. And... He's suspecting that Night Swan is kind of directly challenging Thrawn into these kind of events where, and I quote, he set up his mollusk smuggling group in an area he knew the Thunder Wasp was patrolling. He made certain that Umbara was mentioned within the smuggler's hearing. He knew of my interest in Clone War weaponry and made certain the name of Night Swan was on at least one order of the vulture droids, he means. And Eli says, interesting, <laughs> on the surface for Thrawn to even suggest such a thing bordered on the ego maniacal, which is probably true for Thrawn to think this is, oh, this is clearly all about me. <laughs> but he's right. Or I, I guess we can assume that he's right, that there's a clear pattern here where uh, Night Swan is kind of drawing Thrawn into these confrontations where, you know, seeing that he's a step ahead even here, that there seems to be kind of a, a Thrawnish character on the other side, which is it's just posing for a great showdown, isn't it? Yeah, it's like the the, the two great minds of each side are sort of taking each other head on. Um and you start to realise that Night Swan is is sort of playing a game with Thrawn, trying to get him to have this competition between them. Um, and it reminded me of a sort of Jim Moriarty character from Sherlock yes. Holmes. And he 
is this just just playing around is trying to get Thrawn's attention so that he can have maybe a sort of a challenge um, and it uh, really makes the book so exciting and, and I haven't wanted to put it down. Yeah, uh, same. <laughs> I, I would be surprised if anyone would, especially in, after confrontations like these where we can kind of start to see the, the game, like you said, that Night Swan is, is playing here. And that's a really great comparison. I'd never thought of him as kind of a, a Moriarty figure mm-hmm. where... You know, Thrawn is kind of like the the Imperial Sherlock, um, and this that's actually that's a great connection. I, I like that a lot. Where, you know, he's not necessarily trying to to kill Thrawn because he knows that Thrawn can handle these things, but he's trying to kind of toy around and and draw Thrawn into this bigger game, which it's it's just fascinating. Two really great minds. I'm very interested to see how this plays out through the rest of the book. But yeah, that leaves us to the end of chapter 13. Did you have any closing thoughts uh, before we head on to the next? I was just going to mention about, uh, we know that Chino is this uh, imperial officer that sort of understands what's best for the Empire. And then we've got this Admiral Gendling figure who is a bit of a strange one as he has these imperial sides, but then also contradicts that with his... Um, not wanting to cause any collateral damage. Um, But what really got me was what Eli said in the sort of, I think it's the first paragraph of this chapter, where he says, what did the overblown excuse for an admiral think they'd been doing? (laughs) When you can really see that uh, Eli dislikes these types of Imperials. And it sort of gave me a um, the steward of Gondor type vibe from the Lord of the Rings. (laughs) As he's Senator, this yeah. person who can, who has all this power, because he's an admiral. He has the the army behind, but has no real idea of what to do. And clearly, Eli thinks that that's the same. So it's nice to sort of see the distinguished pattern between the different uh, imperials that Thrawn and Eli come up against, or come up that's uh, with. That's such a good comparison with um, <laughs> Denethor and Gendling. It's uh, yeah, because I mean, both have kind of an overinflated uh, view of their capabilities and what they can do compared to how they actually perform in the moment. And <laughs> uh, that is a great crossover, I will say. And for any listeners who have not seen Lord of the Rings extended editions, I would uh, say pause the podcast and go do that instead. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Keep listening. <laughs> um, that's a really great comparison. That's and that's so true. Where you know, kind of sets apart Eli and Thrawn from you know these officers who they might not know it but they're just weighing over their heads and what they think they can do and guys like Thrawn who actually have a have a clue so that's a really great comparison there but yeah that leaves us to the end of chapter 13 and we can dive right into chapter 14 I'll give my summary and then we'll get right into it Arinda Price has solidified her role at the Citizen's Assistance Office, though she reminisces how lonely she feels. However, Wahir and Driller visit her and treat her to dinner at a prestigious restaurant. Wahir informs Price that she has taken a job at a dojo, training bodyguards and teaching martial arts. Driller tells Price that his advocacy group has a job opening, looking for someone knowledgeable about mining. Seeing her chance to be in a more influential position, she takes the job. Driller tasks Price with finding any patterns behind the increase in Imperial mine takeovers. 
In her analysis, she finds the Umbara incident and is shocked to see that Thrawn had already been promoted to captain. Leaving the office late, Price gets stopped by six men looking to start trouble. Wahir arrives to save her and introduces Price to her friend, Otlas, who offers to train Price in self-defense. So this chapter, as kind of all of the Arinda Price chapters are, it's a pretty decent change of pace from you know a heated battle uh, that we got in the last chapter. And we find her at the Citizen's Assistance Office that she's been working at for about, about six months now. So it's been six months since the whole ranking incident. And um, and Wahir and Driller, they surprise her with a visit. And in this chapter, as we'll see, we get kind of a lot of insights into the interpersonal relations and motivations that Arinda Price, like deep down, must feel mm-hmm. and is struggling with. Because as Wahir and Driller visit her and surprise her, uh, and I quote, Arinda all but gasped, feeling her face light up in a smile. And my thought is, wow, maybe Price is genuinely glad to see what could be a, a real friend after all. Because I was kind of doubting if she thought of Wahir as a true friend. But here we kind of get confirmation that that might be the case, don't we? Yeah, it's a sort of a strange emotion that Arinda feels, or what we think that she feels. Because um, we've seen she's a this tough female character that uh, always wants to get what she wants. Um, So seeing her face light up when these so-called friends turn up is sort of strange seeing that, and it makes you wonder whether, yes, since knowing them, they've built up this relationship that they can really say they are now friends. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, not something that we really expect from Price, um, just because she's always been about gaining prestige and and status and power and we never really you know because she had also resolved to kind of go on her own for the rest of this climb back to power but you know it's it's a nice insight into her character to see that she still values those kind of relationships and you know we'll find a little bit more where Wahir makes a joke about Price maybe one day getting swept off her feet by someone who can take her away from that boring old office and we get kind of a glimpse into Price's love life or lack thereof because the outlook is not that good uh where price is and i quote aware of the permanent hollow spot in the core of her being and that nothing had really worked out in relationships when she'd actually tried to pursue someone or to engage in a relationship with someone pursuing her and it just not really worked out for her but i thought that was i i just would not have expected arinda price to have tried to really have tried at a relationship Mm, you can start to sort of see the character that uh, has been described to us before would sort of push any indication of attention away. Um, but the fact that she's she's tried um, is a real eye-opener into her character, that she is still this human with these emotions that still would like to get somewhere within a relationship. Um and it's it is really nice to see i think that's a really great point because you know we see like you say we see the humanity of price here and i think if we hadn't had the chance to see her character develop in a book like this that's centered around antagonists you know if we had only seen her through the lens of you know a show in rebels or if she had appeared in one of the movies it 
you know, it's pretty much in those cases only like she's just one of the bad guys and that's all that matters. But there's more to her than that, like you're saying. And, and there is a, a deeper level here where, you know, she's just as human uh, with just as many real emotions as any of the other characters in Star Wars that we're familiar with. And I think there's a lot of value in that in a book like this that we can dive into that reality because, you know, she she can experience love and loss and, you know, friendship and all that that, you know, we normally wouldn't associate with Imperials. So it's just a, a great insight. And like you said, into the humanness behind the cold front that Arinda Price mm-hmm. typically puts on. And she has this quote where she says, actually, I do my best work when I'm alone. And she had said this before Wahir had confronted her, like joked about the relationship possibility but I think that that going at it alone doing my best work when when I'm alone mentality could potentially apply to all aspects of her life not just her work do you think that that could pertain to to the whole character of Price or do you think that you know she could potentially have more success in life if she had someone with her I definitely think when she first came to Coruscant and she lost her mind earlier on in the book, uh, that she came here thinking that being alone and doing everything alone was the best idea, sort of not making like friends and just sort of acquaintances that will allow her to get to the top. But I think slowly as she's uh, sort of succumbed to the uh, life within Coruscant, she started to realise that maybe if she had one or two sort of friends or um, people that she can count on, she might be able to get to where she wants to go faster um, or with or have greater success at getting nearer to the top of the social hierarchy. So I think in terms of her work, maybe doing it alone is the best, but in terms of socially... Um, having a few companions is definitely sort of ideal. Yeah, and, and we can see that kind of with Thrawn and Eli because, you know, Thrawn, we could see that he doesn't really need Eli in order to be successful in what he does, that it's kind of his choice to have taken Eli along to groom him along the way, but that he knows that he he's pretty confident on his own, that he doesn't need someone else. But we see that there there have been moments in the book where, Eli has supplemented that relationship pretty well, where he can fill in the gaps of what Thrawn doesn't understand in the political side of things, for example, where Thrawn ends up succeeding more because he has Eli mm. with him, even though in you know kind of military strategy he doesn't need him, but there are other ways that Eli can contribute, and you know I think that you're right that socially climbing the social ladder and not just the ladder of power that we could maybe think that Price could potentially be more successful, but maybe that just highlights the difference between Thrawn and Price, because we can see that Price is kind of the political Thrawn in this book, right? Where maybe that just shows the difference in motivations between them, where Thrawn sees a value in Eli, where Price, she doesn't really, she's not even considering seeing the value that someone else can offer to her work. Yeah, and we can see, we saw very early on um, with Thrawn, he instantly attached himself to Eli. He requested him to sort of come everywhere with him. Um, Whereas we've seen with Price, she's very much been alone from the start. 
Um, and as we've seen, she's sort of fallen down and is trying to get back up again, whereas Thrawn has consistently made his way up. Um, so I definitely think that Price's mentality of being alone is um, potentially hindering her in her way to the top. I would totally agree. It's kind of she has the more imperial mindset there where it's all about herself and that it's about her climb. But that maybe points out the flaw in the imperial design uh, where Thrawn is able to succeed because he's not, or, you know, Price is still succeeded, but he, Thrawn is able to succeed more in certain ways because he's not totally bought into this imperial doctrinization of going out on your own and all about personal power and personal glory and it's it's a good contrast between price and thrawn where they're both very calculating figures but thrawn is maybe able to see a bigger picture in realizing that there are certain things that he can't control where price although she surrendered control in certain points to you know ranking and when she was kind of powerless against moff Gotti, you know she's I would think that she's been more about more obsessed about taking control than Thrawn is, and I just think yeah. it's a cool little contrast where, you know, it's very imperial of Price, but uh, maybe to her detriment. But you know, she does take a small step here uh, up the social ladder, mm-hmm. where uh, Wahir and Driller offer to take her to this restaurant called the Pinnacle. And Price thinks that Wahir is joking about it. And Wahir says, and I quote, I never joke about food. And I'm like, yes, Wahir, that is so relatable and so spot on. Yeah, pretty much what every person thinks. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I love seeing those little relatable moments in Star Wars where it's like, yeah, the, the, the love for food is not, you know, can be applied, <laughs> can be applied uh, everywhere. So credit to Wahir. And we'll see that her character really uh, has a, an increase, a raise in her stock in this chapter. So uh, in the next part of the chapter, they're at the pinnacle and Price is looking around and where it seems that at every other table, there seems to be this powerful figure that she recognizes from when she worked with ranking. And she's reminiscing again about how far she's fallen. And, and we really see that she's struggling a lot to, to come to terms with just how far she has fallen compared to where she wanted to be and she had thought she had kind of mulled over and struggled with that in the last chapter and we see that it's it's really eating away at her isn't it yeah she's hit the social bottom the career bottom end of things um and coming to terms with it she has struggled as she was this sort of power hungry individual that came to Corazon looking for the top spot and it's been a couple of years and she's still at the bottom. Um, It's a sort of a knock of your confidence and she doesn't really know the best way to go from here Um, but as we know she is a determined person so um, we are sure she is going to do something to get herself out of it. Yeah, and Driller kind of offers her an in to get into a more influential position because he lets her know that his advocacy group has an opening. And it's kind of ironic that Price could have a job for the group that she had kind of shot on when Driller had initially told her that he works for an advocacy group and he and Price was like, um, checking him off my list because advocacy groups aren't that great. But now she's in a position where that's kind of the the only option at a better career now that she has. And, 
And she was thinking earlier in the chapter about how she has to deal with all these desperate people in desperate situations where really she's exactly like that, where this is a desperate time for her. And it's kind of a desperate measure for her character where, you know, a couple of chapters ago, I doubt that she'd even consider taking a job for Driller's advocacy group, but here's a way out for Price and she does take the job. And Wahir also lets her know that she has left her waitressing career for bodyguard training and that she knows martial arts. And I'm like, damn, Wahir is a, is a badass. <laughs> She's caught the woman. Yeah, she loves her food and she knows how to kick ass. It's a, it's a good combination. <laughs> so yeah, Price does take the job. So, And her mind is instantly racing where she knows that an advocacy group wasn't a big step up status-wise, but it would take her one step closer or kind of in a better position to insert herself into the center of political power again where it's not exactly what she wants but i think we we've seen that price is not about only taking massive leaps to get where she wants where this is a situation where it's kind of a small step but it seems to be on the path that she needs to be and she's fine with taking even a small step yeah she's realized after being in this sort of job that doesn't get her anywhere um that she's got to take any opportunity available and so she's been given this one um and is gonna do the best she can with it um and realizes that it will get a couple of rungs from the bottom of the ladder but there's still more work to do but it's just the small steps that she can then take to try and get herself to the top yeah like uh, i think there's only up for price from yeah. here, so so any step is a step up right now, and she and she takes it. So, uh, the the next scene finds us at uh, Higher Sky's advocacy group, which is Driller's group, and our first impression of this company is that Price seems to notice that there's no one around ever, and and I quote: either the rest of the staff was off doing nefarious things, or else there was no other staff. I was thinking, that's pretty sus, isn't it? That's for our first impression. Uh, that's pretty suspect. It's a little bit sketchy um, as she's been sort of offered this job expecting there to be other people she can work with or, in her mind, working against. But there seems to be no one and she's sort of confused about it and has got to almost just keep an eye out as to what is really going on here. Yeah, because she's kind of pieced together that Driller is probably lying about what he says. Like, oh, people are just off uh, on other runs and it's just a difference in timing. But all that matters to Price here is that he pays well. So she's fine with whatever is the case here. But clearly there seems to be something, I don't know if something wrong, but something is is just weird about this situation. So, But she's she's fine with it now uh, as long as she, you know, is getting paid and... Has a, has a place to live, and although the job did not offer her an apartment like her job with Ranking did, um, she and Wahir had uh, agreed at the Pinnacle to be roommates, so that is Price's living situation now that she is rooming with uh, Wahir. So Driller asks Price to analyze the increase in Imperial takeovers of mines, and to see if there's some kind of pattern to it. And I thought that, oh, that's pretty cool. They you know, they might find the same pattern that Thrawn did. Maybe their paths are going to intersect again. And lo and behold, when she's analyzing the recent mining takeovers, she sees the Umbaran incident 
and sees that Thrawn's name is there and that he's a captain. And she's shocked because in her mind, and probably in, in reality, it takes many, many years for a lieutenant, because she had the last time that she had met Thrawn was when he was a lieutenant, and it takes many years for a lieutenant to get promoted to a captain, but not for our boy, because <laughs> he's just that good. So that was uh, not necessarily a, an intersection of their paths, but it was cool to see that, you know, once again, his name comes up in relation to, to Price. So she lets that case rest because it is late, and she needs to get home. And as we see, going home late on Coruscant, especially when her apartment is in the lower levels of the planet, is dangerous and she's on her way back and she is comlinked Wahir and told her that it's late she's on her way back and Wahir is instantly nervous for her so we can tell that this situation is is pretty severe where it's it's no small feat to walk on your own especially as a woman back home when it's late on the lower levels in the undercity so Price is riding a turbo lift down to her apartment level, and it doesn't stop at her floor. It keeps plummeting down faster and faster, and Price starts panicking, and Wahir tells her to pull the emergency brake. And she does, and she stops a thousand levels from the top. So she's in trouble. And Wahir is directing her to the nearest turbo lift on that lower level, and she tells her to hide her comlink because that would identify her as being upper class, which she doesn't want to do because that could be very dangerous. And I thought that was a very, it's a small but interesting and maybe our first look into kind of interclass relations on Coruscant. Yeah, we, we don't hear much about the difference in these classes, but there clearly is a sort of a huge difference between the upper levels where you know you can imagine they have expensive things have this technology um whereas the lower levels it's it's dirty they are sort of it's poor um and it's sort of just the same as with any city you have the back streets and then you have the high rises and expensive areas but it's a nice sort of piece of information that we're given into the inner workings of Corazon that there are these dirty places that are still dangerous to anyone who is not used to them or is from the sort of upper levels. Yeah, I think it's a, maybe perhaps a very intentional uh, design of Coruscant where the upper class are literally on the upper side yeah. of the planet and those who are you know of lower socioeconomic status and who are poorer find themselves below and i think it's it's an interesting metaphor and and i wish we had a little bit more insight into that and and i bet there's good reason for the people in the lower levels to be kind of resentful towards the upper class and those who have it so much better up there um but you know this this chapter is in price's point of view and i think price has a right here to be anxious and we're kind of let into that where you know she's alone in a place where she doesn't belong and she could easily be attacked and as we see there are six men that kind of come out of this alleyway and two are carrying long chains and four are carrying knives and my first thought was okay what the hell and that's like this really <laughs> extreme just like randomly just carrying long chains and knives um but these guys are looking to start trouble and you know price is afraid and there's really not much one woman can do against six armed men but price notices that there is another woman and a man who are approaching the group 
and the other woman walks up and just takes out four of them with uh, all these martial arts moves, and that is Wahir. And <laughs> like, dude, so badass. Yeah. Just like walks up and just casually just saves the day. <laughs> just, Saves the day. She just wrecks four of them, and the other two run away. <laughs> but this is definitely a great chapter for Wahir, um, <laughs> <laughs> where um, she introduces Price to her friend Atlas, and he's one of Wahir's trainees at the dojo. And he he wasn't at liberty to say who he worked for. And Price thought, and I quote, "That kind of mandated silence usually implied someone very high up the political ladder lurking behind the curtain." this Atlas character might be worth cultivating. And so that's kind of like Price back to normal, always yeah. looking for a connection and always looking for some means to increase her uh, her, her prestige and the, the people that she knows. But Wahir recommends Price take lessons, private lessons from Atlas in self-defense. And we get this little interesting moment from Atlas where he says, and I quote, more than enough time to instruct you in the basics. He smiled almost shyly. And perhaps a bit more. <laughs> Thinking, oh snap, is Wahir trying to set Price up? <laughs> ooh, ooh, she could be, but um, I just—it's it, quite funny that there's been this really dangerous situation, and then Price is already back to normal, thinking about taking these opportunities. Then Wahir's here, just <laughs> setting these two up, and it's a—it's quite a big change from what's just happened thirty seconds ago. Yeah, it's like, oh, don't mind the bodies just like hanging around here, just knocked out cold. Let's talk about relationships and how to increase your connections. It's uh, it's, it's ca- pretty casual, but it's, it's good to see that Price is kind of, she is very shaky in this moment where I think she almost kind of falls over and Wahir needs to catch her because, you know, it's pretty traumatizing what almost could have happened. Yeah. But you know, kind of Price is getting back to normal where, you know, now she can head back on her way up and, you know, she's got her, her friends who saved her here and, you know, things seem to be looking up where she may be a potential relationship and now she's going to be training in self-defense. Uh, and maybe this is the beginning of Price's climb back to, to power. Maybe it is only up from here. Mm. Yeah, especially because... Uh, this guy, we don't know much about him, but he must have this sort of influential government type backing. So this is a sort of perfect opportunity that Wahir has given Price to sort of get to know this guy and, yeah, potentially climb higher on the ladder. Yeah, so there's the potential for both romance and for also, like you said, potentially another connection for Price to make up the ladder. Um, but yeah, that leaves us to the end of chapter 14. Did you have any closing thoughts before we close out? Uh, I quite like the way Zahn made it feel like the, every time that Arinda sort of gets an up sort of stage, there's always a, a down stage that happens where she she gets this job up in this advocacy group and then immediately she has this literal fall as she goes down a thousand levels to the dark depths of the understreets where she's confronted with this dangerous situation and then she's saved by her friends and then is got this opportunity at the end so it's another up um so i I quite like that there's always these ups and downs in arinda's sort of problems and and life 
Yeah, it's it's very much like a roller coaster ride, <laughs> <laughs> and you you gotta wonder if uh, if there'll be more drops for her now, or if she's if it's only upwards for for price now. But it has been very uh, very up and down, and seeing how she's overcome adversity and been confronted with adversity, and it's it's been really intriguing from just looking at her character and and how she adapts to those situations. And yeah, it's it's very a very intriguing arc. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, but yeah, that that does conclude chapter fourteen. Sturm, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. For these past two episodes, I really appreciate it. It's been uh, it's been good fun having you on, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been great to be here. Yeah, always good to to break down these chapters with a friend and just getting getting more insight and just throwing the ideas around. Yeah. So I really appreciate you making the time, man. And listeners, thank you so much for listening. If you are interested in keeping up with the show on social media. You can follow us on Twitter at Outer Rim Read Pod, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. A good review on Apple Podcasts does help for other people to find Outer Rim Reads who are interested in Star Wars and the literature, so good reviews on Apple Podcasts are very much appreciated. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Geha, it is produced by Andrew Geha, it is edited by Andrew Geha, and we will be back in two weeks with Episode 8. So until then... Sit back and enjoy. Pull up a chair next to Calrissian over there. Luke told me he brews a great pot of hot chocolate.